Hydro works very well. It's a very steady, reliable resource, um, but it can vary a little bit month to month, as well as year to year, what the flows look like. The, the newer nuclear plants that we're looking at also are a lot more flexible and can also pair very well with, say, a, a significant renewable build out. And so together, we think that we have the possibility to create a very powerful system that can still be very reliable through all types of weather, all kinds of conditions, and, and still provide the lowest cost power to the Welcome back to DAM, the official podcast of Northwest Hydropower. I'm your host, Austin Rohr, and I manage all things communications here at Northwest River Partners. Pump storage, hydrogen, energy efficiency, and microgrid technology. What do all of these things have in common? Well, for one, they're tools being explored and put to use as we strive towards achieving a future powered by clean energy. Secondly, and almost importantly, They've all been topics of discussion here on DAM. I know what you're thinking. None of those are hydropower, and this is a hydropower podcast. Or maybe you're not thinking that because you actually listen to all of those episodes, and you understand that A, pump storage is actually a type of hydropower, and B, all of these technologies, when paired with hydropower, work even better. There are still plenty more technologies for us to cover, though and one that I've been seeing a lot lately in the comments on social media, especially, is nuclear. Now, don't go and have a meltdown because this ain't your granddad's nuclear, all right? There have been significant advancements in nuclear technology, including these things called small modular nuclear reactors, which are quickly turning more and more eyes towards this technology. Today, we'll see if we can turn a few ears towards nuclear, and that's all made possible thanks to our expert guest, Greg Colin, Vice President at Energy Northwest. So first off, Greg, thanks for joining us today. You're welcome. Happy to be here. All right. So as we you know, always like to do, we, we try and start off this thing by getting to know a little bit about you and what you do. So what is the path to becoming Vice President at Energy Northwest look like? Uh, interesting question. I'm not sure I know what the path should look like. I can tell you mine has been a very uh, uh, strange and windy path, um, but a really rewarding one. I have actually spent uh, my entire career with Energy Northwest, which uh, coming up, I'm a couple months away from uh, 30 years with Energy Northwest. I spent almost 25 years of that at Columbia Generating Station in a variety of roles, most of them in leadership roles, uh, just moving through different parts of the organization. Um, and then about five years ago, I came to uh, the other side of our company, which we call energy services and development. And so now I have responsibility for what I like to say is everything we do, but Columbia generating station. So all of our non-nuclear generating assets, uh, which we have several and, uh, uh, programs and services that we provide for our utility member utilities, other utilities and other entities. Um, you know, it's uh, one of the things that stories I like to tell is. Um, when I first uh, was, was being introduced as moving over to energy services and development, the then chairman of our executive board, Sid Morrison, uh, broke into the introduction to say, Greg's the only one at Energy Northwest that writes his uh, position description on his business card in pencil. Um, and that's because, again, in my 30 years here, I think this is my 14th or 15th uh, job title. Uh, so I've had the opportunity to move around, do a lot of different things, see a lot of different parts of the organization and learn a lot. 
Um, what's been really rewarding now is that for me, it's it's uh, had, had a chance to come all together and I'm using a lot of what I've learned over the years uh, to bring together and try and develop all kinds of different programs, services, projects, and technologies. Well, that all sounds good. And, and it sounds like I'm not going to get in trouble for calling you an expert then. <laughs> <laughs> well, I suppose you could say that. Um, I am an engineer by degree, but I like to think that uh, uh, for some somehow I ended up being an extroverted engineer. So I like to talk about uh, these things as well. And, and this is an area that I have a lot of passion around. Well, we're glad to uh, we're glad to get your expertise and, and your uh, your thoughts today. And now that you're in that position, um, what exactly does the job as vice president entail? Well, uh, I guess, you know, if you think about it, we have established as we looked out over basically what we're facing as a region. Um, and a few years ago, you know, we started looking ahead to uh, the, the focus on decarbonization that was clearly coming at us and gaining momentum and, and has clearly uh, increased over time. Um, we were looking at the same time at a lot of concerns around resource adequacy and making sure that we were going to have sufficient resources to meet our peak load times throughout the year. And, and we're also, as I think you probably know, we're, we're in the midst of the Bonneville Power Administration's contracts expiring in 2028 and the process to sort of think, what do those look like? And so in a lot of ways, our member utilities and of course all the public power in the region, you know, we're asking where is their power gonna come from and what's that gonna look like in a decarbonized system and, and one that we already have concerns about whether we have adequate resources. So when you mix all those together, uh, there's some real challenges coming at us. And if you go back to the history of why Energy Northwest was created and what we are, uh, we are a joint operating agency of the state of Washington. And in simple terms, what that means is we're not a government agency, but we were established by, um, by statute, by the state government. Um, but we are in essence, public power. We were created to, to serve public power and serve the utilities of the region. And we are a not-for-profit Entity, And so we our, our uh, intention is to do those things at cost and provide those in a way that provide the best benefit to public power in the region at the lowest cost. Um, and so when you think about all those challenges that we're facing as a region, that sort of led us to think that, hey, it's really probably time for us to step up and increase more of, of what we're doing, get back to the original mission for which we were created and uh, and, and play an important role. If you look back over the last 25 years or so, uh, we have been leaders in developing a lot of clean energy technologies, including solar and wind and solar with batteries in the region. We've been early leaders on every one of those technologies. Um, and we continue to do that and explore that. And other things, we have been instrumental in helping develop out the electric vehicle charging infrastructure for the, for the state in particular and the region. Um, you know, so we've been at the forefront of a lot of these things, and we set a vision for ourselves of, of, of leading the public power community of the Northwest uh, through this energy transformation that's coming at us. So with that vision in place, uh, you know, you can think about, again, we have a, a vice president and chief nuclear officer who's responsible for Columbia Generating Station and making sure that we operate, operate it safely, reliably, and predictably. Um, we have corporate VPs that make sure all of our standard corporate support are being properly provided to everyone in the agency. Um, but if you think about that vision of leading the 
the uh, Northwest Public Power Community forward through this transition uh, really kind of falls on my organization. Because again, we do all of the sort of programs and services and development of new programs and services and development of new projects, including generating projects and others. So um, kind of falls on, on my organization. And, and so I have the uh, uh, one department that operates our non-nuclear assets. I need to make sure that they're being operated uh, safely and reliably and predictably. I, I have, uh, we have a, a, a environmental testing and analysis laboratory and a, a, a instrument standards calibration laboratory. I need to make sure they're operating effectively and that we're uh, providing good low cost service to those that want to use that. Um, but then also that we're laying out the right strategic plans and business plans to kind of go develop the things that our members or other utilities are telling us they need and want uh, for us to develop for them going forward. And so uh, really a lot of a variety of things, but but it's, I guess it all comes down to, I have ultimate responsibility for um, for, for making sure that we are, have the right thing, right things and, and uh, right plans in place to go fulfill that vision and our company mission. And so, you know, I know we'll talk about nuclear a lot today, but for people trying to understand who Energy Northwest is, I mean, there's a lot more to it than just maybe that nuclear component that we're going to explore. Yeah, I think, you know, most people think of us as the people, the company that operates Columbia Generating Station, uh, the nuclear power plant, the only one within about a thousand miles of here. Um, and that's certainly a major part of what we do. Um, but yes, we do other things. Uh, we have uh, about 96 megawatts of wind uh, in the three different phases of that project that we operate. We have uh, uh, hydro facilities that we operate, both our own and others that we operate, maintain for other utilities. Uh, we have a, a small solar project that we, again, was early of its kind back in the year 2000 when it went online. It was considered sort of utility scale demonstration, um, uh, kind of, again, early of its kind. Uh, we uh, recently developed a, a battery and, and a solar project with a grant from the State Department of Commerce in Washington to, uh, um, to help develop that technology. And again, it was kind of a, a first of its kind at that level. I mentioned some of the other things we do, including our electric vehicle charging station build out that we've done and we've been involved in, I don't know, somewhere approaching probably 20 plus stations that we've put around different arterials around the state. Um, but again, even there are some programs that we do for our members. We have a uh, workforce development program and right primarily uh, has been centered around an internship program for utilities that has really taken off over the last few years has been very popular with our members and uh, it's been very successful. Um, we have uh, uh, recently started a program to help pursue grant funding. Uh, you know, obviously the state has a lot of uh, uh, funds now available for clean energy projects or other resilience projects, but the federal government with the infrastructure bill, the Inflation Reduction Act, you know, there are a lot of funding opportunities coming uh, from the federal government as well. And so we put together a program to help our members pursue those funds and has been very successful. We're already into tens of millions of dollars in grants awarded to uh, member utilities through that project. So a lot of things that we can and do do for utilities um, that want it. Again, ideally, uh, we serve them in the way they, they want us to and, and at cost uh, for them um, to, to help them at the lowest cost. And in terms of those member utilities, I, I know that we probably share a lot of members between the two of us, but um, maybe you could give our listeners particularly a better understanding of who who some of those members would be. You know, what is that? What does that membership base look like? You know, where are they located? What kind of size utilities are we talking about? 
Well, you know, um, many of your leader, listeners might know this, but I'll say it anyway. You know, first of all, you can divide utilities into two main categories. Investor-owned utilities that, that you know, have usually uh, stock shareholders that, that expect to make a profit off that utility. Um, and then consumer-owned utilities, which are really, you know, what, what I refer to and I'm saying public power. And those are, you know, utilities that are, um, you know, basically created simply to serve the needs of their members or customers. And uh, our, our, by statute requirement, our uh, membership is all uh, public power. It's all public utility districts or municipalities in the state of Washington. But participation in our programs and projects is not limited to our members. So we have a total of 92 different utilities that participate in our projects across six different states, uh, kind of centered here in the Northwest, but obviously spreading out. And uh, so, so our joint operating agency structure allows us to be very flexible in what and who and how we serve um, for that reason. But, but our primary focus is around public power, and particularly our members. There are 28 uh, uh, public utility districts and municipalities in Washington that, that are current members of Energy Northwest. That is almost all of the public utility districts that do electric power for their members. And I think it's a large majority of the municipalities that uh, do that as well. So I guess the, the big question now is about the nuclear side of things. What is the rundown on that project? Uh, well, we, you know, I guess, let me back up a little bit on that. You know, it was 2010 was the first time we had a group of utilities, including an investor-owned utility outside of our membership that came to us and, and, and funded a, a project for us to go sort of research the possibility of developing new nuclear in the region. Um, it's interesting to me to think that there were utilities as early as 2010 that had the vision to realize that we might need something like this in the future. Um, that study really sort of led us to a, a, a long-term partnership um, both in, with NewScale and helping them develop their small modular reactor technology, and then leading into a partnership with UAMS, the Utah Associated Municipal Power System, uh, which is also a joint operating agency like Energy Northwest, but, but obviously uh, headquartered in Salt Lake City, Utah. Um, but we partnered with them in the development of their uh, carbon-free power project, which intends to deploy the NewScale technology in, in, uh, uh, in Idaho, down on a site on the Idaho National Lab uh, uh, footprint, if you will. And uh, we partnered with them for many years to help them develop that project and with the idea that we would be the intended uh, operator of that project. Um, and so we've spent a long, you know, since again, or as early as 2010, sort of thinking about and exploring what would the development of, of nuclear in the region look like. Um, in 2020, uh, right about the time that our, our a study that we commissioned around having adequate resources in the region um, that was performed by E3, who's done many of the other studies uh, similar in the region, um, about the time that study came out and, and concluded that, that the lowest cost decarbonized system is one that includes nuclear as a, as a, as a major clean firm resource, um, as well as I would add, keeping all the hydro that we currently have. Um, uh, there, there was also in the federal appropriations bill that year, uh, direction from Congress to the Department of Energy to go create a program uh, to, to build two new reactor technologies in this country by the end of the decade. And uh, that was a surprise to 
even us in the industry, uh, when that came out, and you think about what that represents, right? As, as early as 2020, you know, bipartisan support and direction, then signed by the president to uh, to go develop this program and go build two new technology reactors. Uh, we ended up being a part of both of the winning awards for those projects. Uh, one of those was won by TerraPower, and that's Bill Gates Nuclear Company, headquartered in Bellevue, Washington. Um, and they are right now developing a, a sodium-cooled reactor technology that is going to be deployed in Wyoming on a retiring coal site. Um, and they're doing that with uh, for Pacificor, uh, investor-owned utility that actually uh, has you know utility in Washington, Oregon, and California, as well as another one in in kind of the uh, uh, Idaho, Utah kind of uh, Wyoming area. Um, and uh, they intend to deploy that technology uh, and take it over, but uh, TerraPower is having to develop not only the technology, which is kind of their expertise, but the operational maintenance training strategies for that technology. And so we are consulting with them right now and helping them through that path and, and helping them develop that. Um, but we were also a part of the award for X Energy, a different technology that has really become our focus. It's a high temperature gas cooled reactor um, and uh, also very modular. Um, but, but sort of falls in what they call the advanced tech, uh, reactor technology categories like the TerraPower one does. So we have diverted our focus away from the UAMPS and New Scale project towards the, these two to, because of the amount, again, the significant uh, uh, focus that that required. Um, but we have uh, pushed our focus primarily on the X-Energy technology is the one that we think is probably the best fit for a future Northwest grid. Um, and so that, that project has taken several sort of turns again over time. Uh, initially, again, that advanced reactor demonstration program, which is the federal name for that program, um, was intended to, for that X Energy project to be built here in the state of Washington. Um, but that since has transitioned to, uh, with our full participation in this decision, by the way, many people have characterized this, this, uh, this as sort of us losing this project, if you will. Um, but, but in working with X Energy, uh, we came to believe that the better approach was for Dow Chemical, who was very committed to building a, uh, an X Energy four module project uh, to provide both electricity and process heat uh, for a facility of theirs in Texas. Um, we felt it was better for them to have the lead on that first project. Uh, you can imagine that, you know, utilities often are not flush with cash. Uh, we, uh, you know, public power utilities in general operate at very tight margins, again, trying to keep their uh, rate pay, rates down for their customers. And so, um, you know, we have to finance anything we do. Um, whereas an entity like Dow Chemical has a lot more access to capital and to be that first moving project. And so we like the idea of being right behind them. So our goal right now is to develop an X energy uh, project here in the state of Washington on about a two year time lag behind the Dow project so that we can take all the real learnings um, from that project and translate them directly to our project in, in the hopes of improving both the predictability of the schedule uh, as well as cost as we move forward with that. So we are uh, moving down that path. We've been working on this X Energy project since 2020, as I mentioned. Um, uh, quite a bit of work has, has gone on in that. We know a lot more today than we did then, and we have uh, put together a very, very strong, uh, capable staff to, to help lead us through this. We have probably somewhere in the order of uh, 11 utilities that have sent us 
uh, formal letters of interest, uh, identifying a certain number of megawatts they might be interested in. Uh, we have about 13 utilities, and that Venn diagram does not completely overlap with the 11, um, but there are about 13 utilities that have provided us some forms of uh, funding to help uh, kind of fund a feasibility study on this, which is kind of what we're in the, pro in the phase of right now. Now, we have other utilities um, that, that have expressed some, some real interest around this. Um, and, and I guess just what I would say, Austin, bottom line, what we have uh, heard many, many times from many utilities is that they acknowledge we're going to need a technology like this in the region. And while, while it might seem daunting and challenging to think about the idea of building new nuclear projects uh, here in the region, um, it's pretty well acknowledged we're going to need something like this. And so a lot of interest, a lot of urging forward from us and, and for us and a lot of support uh, towards trying to, to, to have us really keep, continue to develop the information we need to make the right decision on whether we should actually go forward with the project. I interrupt this podcast to bring you an advertisement from none other than ourselves. What if the Northwest suddenly lost all hydropower? Half of our local energy would immediately disappear and be replaced with dirty fossil fuels. Greenhouse gases would rise along with our electric bills. Because without hydropower, 80% of the Northwest's renewable energy would be gone. Thankfully, Hydropower remains abundant, affordable, and 100% carbon-free. Our power is water. Learn more at northwestriverpartners.org. Now, back to your favorite water power podcast. Well, I think that really speaks to you know, what I've been seeing as well with the, the amount of people that are bringing this up on social media, for example, it, it seems that, you know, it's caught on with the energy leaders. It's now starting to get into the eye of the general public and the policymakers, and it's, it's gaining some significant traction. I mean, do you have uh, maybe some thoughts on, on why that traction has picked up so much? I mean, is it, you know, is it just people coming to understand our, our energy needs are greatly increasing in the near future? Or uh, is it maybe the, you know, coming to understand better the new nuclear technology and, and the changes that have been made to maybe reduce some of the, the fears people have had in the past? Well, I think, Austin, it's all of the above. Um, I would say that probably the most significant driver for for what I would say is a significant change in, in yeah, the tenor and tone around nuclear and, and, the, and the volume, if you will, is, um, is the decarbonization push, right? For many people, you know, this is, I mean, it's, it's becoming an overused term, but if you think about it, it's pretty powerful. This is an existential crisis, right? Um, you know, for, 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 uh, for our planet, for our kids, for our grandkids, you know, that, that uh, you know, we have to do something to decarbonize. And, and, and of course, um, even now, it's law in Washington, Oregon, and California, right, that we're going to decarbonize. So, um, so that has, you know, put, put a, a certain different spin on how our, where our power comes from and what it looks like. And, and I think that what, what I've seen is that people 
Um, particularly, I'd say those that are under, say, 60 in particular, uh, certainly under 45 or 35, you know, that, that decarbonization push um, as part of a, a concern of climate change, you know, has caused people to be so much more open to anything that can help with that. Um, you know, uh, it's fascinating, Austin. What, what we've seen is, you know, about four years ago, you know, we regularly do, because of Columbia Generating Station, we regularly do surveys around public perceptions on nuclear and try to learn what we can about what people are thinking and, and what, what information they might want or need from us. Um, about four years ago, we did a, a survey across the state of Washington. And uh, what we found was pretty consistent with what we had been finding, what we see across the country back then. Just over 50% of people kind of said, yeah, generally I support nuclear. What was fascinating about that though is only 25% thought other people supported nuclear. So one problem nuclear has always had is that everybody sort of assumes a lot of people are against it. And so no one wants to have, bring, uh, bring up the, the topic or have the conversation, despite the fact that it's not necessarily the case. But what's fascinating is we redid that survey three, uh, about a year ago, just three years later, uh, same firm, same set of questions, same basic approach across the state of Washington. So no difference there. And now what we found is uh, the general support uh, for nuclear that was just over 50% is now 73%. That's a, that's a stark shift in just three years. And, and I like to joke about, I don't know about you, but show me anything else in this country right now that 73% of people will agree on, right? Um, but, but so to have that for nuclear, I think is, 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 is really compelling, but it's telling again, when you look about that kind of shift, we're seeing that nationwide as well. Uh, other polling and stuff done nationwide is showing, showing similar surges in support uh, for nuclear. Um, but again, I think it's about the need. Um, hey, if I can't use gas or I can't use coal or I don't want to use gas and coal anymore, um, I think people are understanding that wind and solar and batteries have their place, but, but they're too variable and, and undependable to rely on to make sure that on the coldest days of winter and the hottest days of summer, I'm going to have sufficient power. Um, you know, it turns out one of the things that came out of our study, Austin, it turns out that in the, in the Northwest and particularly in Washington and Oregon, um, the way our weather system works around here, if you have a, a really hot day or a really cold day, um, it's, it's because you, you have a temperature inversion. And a temperature inversion also means you're least likely to have wind and in the winter, solar. So, you know, it turns out that wind and solar, while they certainly have a role to play, um, the more we need them, the least likely we are to have them. And so I think people are recognized that the variability of those technologies does lead us to need something else that's clean and controllable or firm is a term we use. I, I know I can turn it on and turn it off when I need it. Um, I'll give you one other quick story on this because I think this is just so powerful. Um, we started working with a consultant recently who's, who's used to kind of doing campaigns and messaging, and we wanted uh, some advice. Um, you know, she said, hey, I, I'm interested in doing this. And she had a strong passion around the climate and around doing something to, to decarbonize and, and, uh, and try to make a difference. But she said, you know, really, I am, uh, I'm, I'm kind of lost hope that, that we, can, we can do what we need to do uh, in a timeline that's going to make a big enough difference to really change the course of the, of the climate on the planet. And so she had kind of lost some hope. 
And when she first started thinking about supporting nuclear, she said, you know, hey, if this could help, great. You know, uh, I'm interested in helping with that if it could help make a difference. But as she started doing her own research and studying and studying these newer technologies, as you said, Austin, in the, in the open, this isn't your grandfather's nuclear. And as she started realizing the advancements we had made in the technologies um, and how we were trying to approach it, she really had what she actually calls almost a conversion experience. She now thinks maybe there's hope that maybe we can do something fast enough and powerful enough to, to make a difference and turn the tide because we have a, an energy dense, large scale resource like nuclear that's clean and also can make sure I have plenty of power on the system when I need it. And, uh, and so it's been interesting watching her journey as she has learned about that and really has had, again, a pretty powerful experience. But I think that's not atypical of what we're seeing in a lot of places around the country. Um, I mentioned already the, uh, the federal activity around the ARDP, but there's been uh, activities recently as well that show, again, very, very strong bipartisan support in Washington, D.C. around the need to develop these technologies. Again, show me anything in Washington, D.C. right now that has very strong bipartisan support. I can only name one, and it's uh, develop the need to develop nuclear. And we're seeing that move throughout the state leadership as well. Um, and throughout uh, non-governmental organizations that maybe traditionally have been sort of uh, opposed to nuclear, we're seeing shifts in their uh, thought processes, even in tribal groups who are concerned about the land use associated with a major solar and wind build out. Um, we're seeing uh, much more interest or even support for nuclear than what we've seen in the past. Maybe for that other 27%, right? Um, those that still get nervous about the idea of nuclear, what what might you say to those folks? Yeah, very good. Um, well, a couple things. First of all, I'll go back to um, Bill Gates' recent, I, I guess recent, it's a couple of years old now, I think, but his book, How to Avoid a Climate Disaster, uh, he has some interesting things in there where he talks about nuclear. And, and he uses an analogy of the automobile. When the automobile first came out, uh, you can probably imagine that, that these things were not perfectly safe. People were, were getting injured in, in accidents or, or, or things all the time with this. Well, we didn't decide to abandon the automobile as a, as a resource for us. Instead, what we did is put our ingenuity to making, it, making them safer and more reliable. And so you think about where we are today with automobiles compared to when they first came out, right? I have, uh, I have airbags, I have seatbelts and airbags and side airbags, and I have uh, backup cameras and sensors that tell me if I'm backing into something. Um, there are all kinds of features that we've added now to make automobiles a lot more safe than they used to be. And so Bill's point was, hey, why don't we do the same thing with nuclear? It's, it's so important to what we're trying to accomplish. Uh, we're just trying to put our, our ingenuity as a country um, into making these things uh, simpler, better, smarter, and safer, um, and, and hopefully, hopefully uh, cheaper to operate, uh, build and operate. And so if you think about these technologies, the, uh, I'll, I'll, I'll focus, you know, well, almost every one of what you hear these days as small modular reactors, advanced reactors, or even some of the newer large scale light water reactors, like the ones built down in Georgia recently and just coming online. Um, all of these have um, advancements in how they address safety. Now, I personally believe that all nuclear reactors in this country are safe, 
Um, but, but a lot of them historically, like Columbia Generating Station, rely on significant redundancy in the safety systems that will make sure we can get water into the core to keep the fuel cool. These newer designs don't rely on that. They, they use passive approaches to making sure for light water reactors, making sure that you keep water around the core. Um, for like the TerraPower sodium fast reactor, sodium is liquid at, at, uh, at the temperatures you'd be at, right? It doesn't boil off. It doesn't operate at a high pressure. So there's nothing that, that would cause it to, the coolant to, to disappear and, and have the fuel melt. Um, the X energy technology and some of the other technologies that are being developed right now are using a different form of fuel. And this fuel um, cannot melt. And if you can't melt the fuel, then you can't release any sort of radionuclides or fission products out to the environment, which has always been the big concern of nuclear. So, you know, I guess the simplest thing is, and, and, and obviously the Nuclear Regulatory Commission has to buy off on these designs and buy off on these claims, but, um, but our belief is that we have eliminated the thing that you're worried about with nuclear from a safety standpoint. So if that's the case, then why would we be as concerned about building these technologies? Um, the, the other issue that comes up a lot is, well, what about the waste? And I think when people say that, what I, near as I can tell from conversations is generally they're talking about the used fuel. And used fuel from nuclear power plants, no question, is very highly irradiated and, and has to be safely stored um, and protected, people protected from it for, for many, many, many years. Um, but, you know, even if you look at the existing fleet and you look at Columbia Generating Station, I could bring you out to our site and show you where the, the fuel is stored right now. And it's stored in giant concrete casks that sit out on a concrete pad. Uh, those casks are designed to withstand the impact of a 747 airliner. Um, they're designed to withstand an earthquake and, and not fall over. They're designed, if they did fall over, they're still okay. Uh, they sit out there passively cooled. They don't need anything to, to be done to them. And I always tell people that, listen, I, I mean it when I say that I would have my kids stand next to those casks and hug them because there's no radiation coming out of those casks. We have the technology. We know how to safely store used fuel. Um, you know, one conversation I had with an individual once, um, we, we kind of got around to, hey, I, you know, I operate solar panels. I told you I operated some that have been in service since 2000. Um, some of them have started to fail. I'm not sure where I'm supposed to put those panels now, um, but they contain mercury and other chemicals. I don't think I'm supposed to just put those in the ground or send them to the landfill. Um, I don't know where I'm supposed to store those either. Same thing with giant wind turbine blades. Uh, same thing with the batteries I just put in service. They're expected to have a life around 20 years. When they're done, I don't know where to put those. That's safe storage. And we don't have right now the ability to recycle those things in this country. So, um, you know, we face, we face waste issues, if you will. We face upfront mining and land impact issues uh, to create these technologies. We face land use issues. Uh, particularly, again, the significant land use around wind and solar. We face back-end issues, too. Um, nuclear is the only technology right now that by law is required to fund for decommissioning that resource as part of its operating costs. Other technologies don't. So if someone feels a project is done, they have the right to just walk away in some ways. Um, so, you know, I think we face these kinds of issues on all these technologies um, uh, but, but on nuclear specific, we know how to store it safely. We know how to deal with it. 
Um, but also what I will tell you is that I think we, in this country, it's time that we start getting serious again about talking about recycling used fuel. Uh, there is a lot of valuable energy left in the fuel that we store and uh, could continually be recycled and reprocessed. Um, there's a company that we've been working with that believes there's enough value in the fuel that, that it's a commercially viable option to go recycle uh, that fuel. Um, and that when they're done recycling the fuel that we have, like say at Columbia Generating Station, uh, that you end up with 4% of the volume started with that has to be disposed of. The rest of it can all be reused in other forms or processes. So, um, so I think that's a more responsible way for us to think about uh, recycling or, or, or dealing with that the waste going forward as well. Um, and something that the federal government started to invest more money in the study and uh, working on as well. So um, those are probably the primary things I would say, give us a chance, help try to understand again, the technology advancements we've made in, in uh, how these reactors are designed and operated. Um, the other uh, thing that we hear a lot then is, okay, well, the big concern now is the cost, right? N nuclear projects are notorious for going over schedule and over cost. And, and that's very fair. And we as an industry have earned that, uh, that reputation uh, the hard way. Um, but, uh, you know, I, I will tell you a couple things. First of all, I think uh, the, we think the modularity approach of these designs um, allows us to, to manufacture more of the components in factories and bring them to the site, allows us to do things more repetitively and, and bring the learnings from one construction to the next module. Um, we have been able to build, build uh, nuclear projects on time in other countries. Um, so we just have to get around some of our, our uh, licensing and permitting hurdles that can make things more difficult in this country. Um, but, uh, uh, but also I will tell you that, you know, listen, 20 years ago, renewables were not competitive from a price standpoint either. Uh, they've been greatly subsidized by the federal government over that time and continue to be. And that has allowed the technologies to get going uh, to, to, for the price curve to come down as supply chain is built up and as construction of these projects has, has, has grown and, and been uh, perfected. Um, you know, natural gas plants in this country have gotten to the point where they're, they are able to be built pretty quickly because we kind of know the basic recipe and formula and plan for how you do that. So, you know, I'm not naive. I will tell you that the early movers on these projects are likely to have challenges are going to take a little longer than we need and cost a little more than we want them to. Um, but we have to clear that hurdle so we can start bringing those, the cost curve down for those as well. Uh, you know, I, I, uh, I got some numbers recently that I thought were sort of startling. If you look back since 1950, uh, nuclear is a hundred billion with a B dollars behind renewables and batteries in terms of subsidies from the federal government. Um, and the only subsidies really received uh, uh, in most of that were, were research to national lab type organizations. So, you know, I think it's good that the federal government is stepping in and trying to help, but I think there's probably more they can and, and, uh, and will do for us uh, to help bring these cost curves down. But we as a nation need to face those first few, get through them and take those learnings and apply them to the next ones so that we can get in the habit of doing this um, on budget and on schedule. Um, but one quick story I'll throw in there. Um, we, uh, the, the plants that were built down in Georgia that are just coming online now, you know, are notorious for their headlines um, of being almost double in estimated cost and way over schedule. Um, but I had a conversation with one of the, again, another joint operating agency 
um, down in Georgia that is one of the major members and participants in, in one of those reactors. And, and I asked him, I said, knowing all that you know now, um, would you, are you glad you did this? And his answer was very quick and unequivocal, absolutely. He said, we, uh, we understand the decarbonization pressures. We're starting to see decarbonization requirements coming through the Southeast portion of the United States. And our members now have a long-term 60 to 100 year asset that's gonna provide clean, firm, reliable power um, as we try to decarbonize and get off of gas and get off of coal. And that's a major benefit for them. And the costs that they end up with and are paying are not that bad compared to what they originally estimated, despite what you see in the headlines because of some low cost loans they were able to get from the federal government for part of it. Um, and so he absolutely believes that in the end, he's glad that they did that for their member utilities. So I, I want to ask you a really basic question now. But um, I, I think it's an important one to maybe lay the, the groundwork for as well, uh, just so that people understand a little bit better. You know, there's, there's sort of the difference between the next generation of nuclear and the more traditional nuclear plants maybe people are familiar with. And then there's also, you know, the different sort of scales of that technology and, and the one that gets brought up so often particularly is the the small modular reactors could you explain maybe what you know an smr is and how it differs from you know uh say any number of the the other sort of plants that we've been discussing yeah absolutely well you know first of all the the traditional mantra or way of thinking in nuclear has been bigger is better you know, there are some costs that come with building a nuclear project, for example, uh, you know, putting a fence around the plant and having a security force to protect that plant. Those costs are the same whether I'm putting out 1200 megawatts or 600 megawatts. And so traditionally, the kind of uh, uh, idea has been the bigger is better in a sense. I'd rather have 1,200 megawatt reactors, maybe even 1,400 megawatt reactors. I'd rather have two or three of them on the same site. So again, I can take advantages of some economy of scale. Um, and there's some real uh, good reason for that thinking. And I'm not saying that reasoning is, is wrong, but those construction projects are very, very difficult. You talk about significant amount of excavation, and then you're you're you know forming up and pouring significant concrete base mats, and then concrete walls up into the air, and then you got to backfill that dirt very specially, and and that's very expensive, time-consuming construction, uh, with a lot of things that can cause delays. Um, and so, trying to figure out how do we do that better? How can we do the the construction maybe faster and better? So, a small module reactor, technically. Is, is under 300 megawatts, 300 megawatts or less in terms of, of generation output. That's sort of the official definition. Now there's also a term you may have heard of micro reactors, which are basically 10 megawatts, sometimes 50 I hear, but 10 megawatts or so or less is kind of what we think of in terms of micro reactors. Um, and so those are sort of the different categories we put things in. And advanced reactors is kind of a, a term used for non-water-cooled reactors, like the sodium fast reactor, the X-Energy gas-cooled reactor, some of these other technologies, even though those have been operated in this country before and are decades and decades old and have a lot of experience. Um, and, and some of those could be, you know, technically small modular as well. For example, the X-Energy design can be kind of both. 
Um, but, but I think the Nuclear Regulatory Commission actually sort of limits SMRs to water cool, but we'll use them for the broader term. So the concept here again is by, well, what about if by going smaller, we can build, we can make more components in a factory and bring them to the site. Um, what if our construction techniques get more simple then, and they can be more smaller and then more replicated as you learn um, in, in, in a modular fashion to lead to, uh, to better construction techniques. So that's the concept that has kind of led to a focus on, on kind of that small modular approach. The other thing that can be a challenge with a 1200 megawatt reactor is, is that's a big chunk of power put on the system at once. Uh, a lot of, you know, you need, you have to, you have to have a pretty big need uh, for that. Um, and about the time you get to that big a need, still putting 1200 megawatts on the system at once can, can sort of suddenly mean you have too much power. So modularity also allows more of a slower growth pattern and, and more optionality, if you will, um, to sort of add as you need a little bit more closely to your load growth than in, in such big chunks. So that's another advantage that has been talked about for, for quite some time. So that's kind of the concept, um, you know, still has to be proven, but it's, I find it interesting that if you look at like the new scale and the X energy designs, both of them end up right around 75 to 80 megawatts of output per module. And that's not actually a coincidence. Uh, what they did there is they started with what's the biggest module I could fit on a rail car. And let me go from there to decide the size of output. And so I think that kind of thinking is what's helping us believe that, that there, there you know, are ways that this could be much simpler and more like maybe again, natural gas plants or other things to go build than some of this traditional super mega project. And then on the flip side of things, you, you mentioned the Columbia Generating Station, which I understand is currently the only commercial nuclear facility in the Pacific Northwest. And that is based on the traditional nuclear plant technology. Uh, what kind of future do you see with that plant as, you know, more, more investments being made maybe on the, you know, kind of new nuclear side? Yeah. Well, you know, as I mentioned, I spent almost 25 years of my career at Columbia Generating Station. Um, and so it's easy for people to say, well, of course he's pro-nuclear, but keep in mind that means I, I, uh, I raised a family in, in the Tri-Cities around a nuclear power plant as well. And so you can imagine that early in my career, um, you know, I had to decide if I thought nuclear was safe. And uh, I have clearly concluded that nuclear is safe. The way we design and operate and regulate nuclear in this country uh, no question in my mind that um, that nuclear is is safe in this country. Um, the uh, the future I see for resources like Columbia Generating Station, um, I think we have to keep them operating, and we have to keep them operating well into the future. Um, I'll keep this localized for now. Again, if you think about the Northwest, uh, Columbia Generating Station's license. Um, has already been renewed for an additional 20 years over its original 40 year license. And so that means right now that that Columbia's license will expire in 2043. So if you think about a Washington state goal of 100% clean power by 2045, and oh, by the way, Oregon, 100% clean by 2040, and you think about 1200 clean firm megawatts, uh, 2043 is probably a really bad time to remove those from the system. And so uh, we, we think that Columbia sh could, should have its license renewed for another 20 years. 
Um, and that process is well proven out with the Nuclear Regulatory Commission, the kinds of programs and, and inspections and tests that you have to put to make sure it can continue to operate safely are well established and well proven. Um, just about every reactor in the country has already uh, received an extension of its initial license. And, and a few have already received a second extension or renewal of their license for an additional 20 years to get to 80. Um, there are uh, uh, several utilities in this country that are making serious plans to operate their entire nuclear fleets at at least 80 years, if not 100 years. Um, when you go look at the, the Department of Energy, the U.S. Department of Energy issued a report in March of this year. Um, as part of a larger effort, they've been making to study, you know, what's it going to take for us to be successful in decarbonizing? And so this, this report is called the, the Pathways to Commercial Liftoff, and this particular one is for advanced nuclear. What they said is their studies, their analysis says that we need uh, to, to add 200 new megawatts of nuclear in this country by 2050. Now that's a huge number. The existing fleet of reactors in this country is somewhere about 100 megawatts. Some may be surprised to know it's that big, but it's about 100 megawatts. So if you think about the need to triple the amount of nuclear generation that we have in this country by 2050, that's already a significant lift for us as a, as a country. And, um, but, but, trying, but removing any of the existing fleet is just gonna make that much more difficult. So I think it's really important that we maintain the existing fleet. I believe they can operate safely and reliably for easily another 40 years. Um, and I think we need, to, we need to keep that. If you think about Columbia Generating Station, um, 1200 megawatts um, is a lot of power. And we could add another 20 years to that reactor for really uh, what is an incredibly, relatively inexpensive cost. Um, I just think it would be foolish for us as a, as a region in the midst of trying to decarbonize our entire system and the amount of build out that we're going to have to do in all kinds of new resources to take a resource like that, to take any reliable resource that's very cost effective today. And I would include our hydro system in that. Um, to take it out of the system at the time that we're trying to decarbonize it and keep it reliable and affordable, um, I think is, is, is making a mistake. You also mentioned the, the safety thing, right? And, and being in the Tri-Cities over there. Uh, I think a lot more people now after this summer are going to be familiar with that based on, uh, you know, Oppenheimer. It was a, a big movie that came out and explored the Manhattan Project and the, the Hanford site is obviously a, a huge part of that, which is, you know, not far from the Tri-Cities. And then you have the Columbia Generating Station, which is out there as well. What is it like to, to kind of work on nuclear in a place with the kind of history that the area has? Well, I'll tell you, Austin, it, I really appreciate that question. It's a two-edged sword, okay? Um, on the positive side, the Tri-Cities community is very educated on nuclear and what it means and, and how you work with it and around it and, and, and what it takes. And so what we find in our immediate community is nothing but support, uh, both for Columbia Generating Station and its continued operation, but also for this idea of developing new nuclear. Um, you know, you, let me just take a quick right turn for a second. You think about uh, that, that community in Wyoming where, where Pacific Core and TerraPower are developing their nuclear project. 
that was a community staring at the fact that the loss of that coal plant in their in their community was going to devastate the jobs and the economy and likely the community. Um, and now you're talking about an ability to to uh, repurpose those people, repurpose that facility, and and save that community. And and that has led to major support throughout the state. Well, you know, I think in the Tri Cities we see the same thing, right? A large portion of the Tri Cities. Uh, right now, uh, economy and employment is around the cleanup effort associated with Hanford. Um, you know, the Hanford, as you alluded to, the Hanford uh, reservation was a was about creating weapons, plutonium over the, over time. Um, but that now has a major cleanup effort um, associated with it uh, to decommission that facility. Um, but our community is looking ahead to what about when that cleanup effort's done? We have a lot of of really highly skilled nuclear workers. We have a lot of, of nuclear knowledge and experience that we wanna leverage. Um, and we wanna leverage it to develop these new technologies. And we'd like to bring some of the supply chain for that to the, to the region as well. Um, uh, I have to give credit to Sandra Haynes, the chancellor of Washington State University Tri-Cities. Uh, she coined this phrase uh, that has really taken off in the, in the community. And that is uh, clean up to clean energy, right? We see the opportunity to transition from being a community focused on cleaning up the Hanford Reservation to one that's centered around helping develop all forms of clean energy for the region. Uh, Pacific Northwest National Lab is the energy storage lab for the National Lab System and does other clean energy analysis and research. So we see a real opportunity in our community is rallied around this idea, rallied around this vision. Uh, I tell people that quite frankly, in my, in my immediate uh, region, um, I get more push to move faster and get a project built here than I do face any sort of opposition to having one built in our community. Um, and so that's the level of understanding and support that we get from our community pushes forward. By the way, I should note that recently uh, the, the Federal Department of Energy issued a whole initiative on using federal lands, particularly uh, energy uh, 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 reservations like Hanford to develop clean energy. And the Secretary of Energy labeled that the clean up to clean energy uh, project, uh, having stolen that from Sandra Haynes. But anyway, um, but the, the other side of that sword really is that, you know, as you get further away from the Tri-Cities community, it's easy for people to mix what happened at Hanford and, and the waste and the, the, the cleanup needs that were created as part of, of a weapons race um, with Columbia Generating Station. And, and while we lease land on the Hanford Reservation from the Department of Energy, as I mentioned earlier, our waste forms are all solid. We know how to store them. We know it's, they're very different than what's out at the Hanford and came from the weapons production. And so that's something that we have to deal with all the time is make, helping people understand the difference um, that none of the waste that's being cleaned up or dealt with on the Hanford Reservation is because of Columbia Generating Station and, and what we and, and our operation. Um, so that, that the further we get from the Tri Cities, and especially as you get sort of the west side of the of Washington and Oregon, the, the more we see that confusion and uh, have to work to try to clear that up. Not to mention, I guess we're all sort of in a you know, suffering from the uh, Simpsons, 20 some years of the Simpsons, right? Where everybody pictures 55 gallon drums with green uh, fluorescent goo oozing out of it. And, and of course that is completely fictional and, and has nothing to do with the operation of a, of a, of a plant like Columbia Generating Station, um, but, but didn't do us any favors. I'll just say that. <laughs>
There's no there's no three-eyed salmon swimming up the Columbia or snake anytime soon. <laughs> there's no three-eyed salmon, but uh, because, again, our community has accepted the, the some of the misnomers, there's actually a restaurant in town called Three-Eyed Fish. So... <laughs> Somebody's clever there. <laughs> yeah, like I said, we sort of embrace our past and acknowledge uh, people's misunderstandings. Certainly. I, um, you know, I find a similar thing. I, I think the Tri-Cities people are real energy experts uh, because when we go out there for community events, like we got Riverfest coming up here pretty soon, we'll be out there once again. And, uh, you know, people out there understand similarly the, the hydropower issues so well right i mean they're just they're totally tuned into what's going on with the dams and and why they want them there and and how much of a important asset they are to the the community and eastern washington as a whole i, I have to ask uh you know being that it is a hydropower podcast and it's you know got to get a hydropower question in there somewhere right um do you see opportunities for hydro and nuclear technology to be used to benefit one another in some way? And is there a, a way that we could pair sort of these technologies to better benefit the community as a whole? Yeah, absolutely. And, and let me go back and say, Austin, we're doing it today. If you look at the Bonneville Power Administration's uh, system that they operate, the power that they take and, uh, and sell to utilities in the region, it is a combination of the hydro on the Columbia and the Snake and Columbia Generating Station. Uh, Bonneville Power Administration gets all the power from Columbia Generating Station and pays all the costs. And that system together uh, gives us a significant advantage in this region, right? Not only has it given us some of the lowest cost power in the country, um, but think about it, it's given us some of the cleanest power in the country as well. Um, so we are very well positioned because of that. Um, what, what's interesting is, you know, uh, at, at a high level, when people think about something like hydropower, it is easy to think about the fact that, well, that water is always in the river. It's always moving. Um, but as you well know, Austin, that doesn't mean that every month of the year has the same flows of water, um, as others do. And so if you look at an average year, um, you know, every other year, I should say, every other year, every 24 months, Columbia Generating Station shuts down for somewhere a little over a month to refuel and do significant amount of maintenance on the, on the system. Well, how can, you, how can you possibly take 1,200 megawatts off the system at any time? Um, well, because when we do it, we do it in, in usually, usually starting in early May and going out through mid-June when the runoffs are just starting to hit the river heavily. Okay, and oftentimes at that point, uh, Bonneville has plenty of power, and if anything, at times has had more power than they need um, because of the flows that start coming down through that. But then, as you get later in the year, you start getting into late August, right? Those flows have decreased significantly. Um, there's still plenty of water in the river, but they aren't to the same level they once were, and the flexibility of what power they could put out isn't quite there. But now you've got Columbia back online, ready to go, and powering through um, through those times when the hydro flows are a little bit lower. And so, you know, it's already a very strong partnership. They work very well together. Um, and, and what we have found recently, Austin, is um, anytime the weather gets a little cold or a little hot and uh, power starts to get just a little tighter, uh, we get direction from the Bonneville Power Administration to 
minimize maintenance or activities that could possibly cause the reactor to trip offline. Um, as you can imagine, a nuclear power plant that with all of its safety systems can be very sensitive and it doesn't take a whole lot to cause the thing to trip offline and have to be restarted. Um, and those are for safety reasons. Um, but they, so they ask us, please don't mess with anything because this resource, if it came off right now, would be a major challenge to us. But at the same time, the hydro system allows us to have flexibility at times we need to, to ramp up power for short-term windows. Um, so they already work together very, very well. If you take any one of them out of the system and it's not going to work as well. And we see that as, as for the future, future is going to be the same way. Um, you know, hydro, like I said, hydro uh, works very well. Um, it's a very steady, reliable resource, um, but it can vary a little bit month to month, as well as year to year, what the flows look like. Um, the, the newer nuclear plants that we're looking at also are a lot more flexible and can also pair very well with, say, a, a significant renewable build-out, just like the hydro system can. And so together, we think that, that we have the possibility to create a, a very powerful system that can still be very reliable through all types of weather, all kinds of conditions, um, and, and still provide the lowest cost power um, to the region. I also have to ask you about the, the costs that you touched on. Um, and I know that we've discussed the Inflation Reduction Act a little bit here today. When it comes to that act, do you feel that it did enough in terms of kind of covering the, you know, the incentives and everything like that? I mean, you mentioned there's a, that huge gap there. Um, or is it something that we're going to need a lot more incentives and policies moving forward to ensure that we can keep not only the existing nuclear power safe, but also be able to build out these new plants as well? Uh, you know, I, I guess we will see. Um, I think that the Inflation Reduction Act and, and offering those tax credits to nuclear um, were, were a huge step forward. Um, again, it's part of what allowed us to believe that that we could move the ARDP to, to Texas and still, and still do a second project here um, uh, for a reasonable cost. Um, it, it, you, you may be aware that, that for the first time that act also allowed non-federal tax paying entities like public power to have access to those benefits as well. So that was a game changer. Um, and uh, so it, it has gone a long way towards making this feasible. But as I alluded to earlier, for these first few projects, it still probably isn't quite enough. If you think about it, those tax credits I talked about that are being offered to nuclear are also being offered to renewables and batteries, right? So in a sense, you could argue that, that we now have uh, equality in the sense that we're both getting the same thing, but we don't have equity in the sense that we're still $100 billion behind on the nuclear side of things from what we have received on the renewable side. Um, and there's and, and so there's there's still a, an inequity that needs to be resolved in my mind. Um, we, there are, as I mentioned, the, the, the DOE document that came out in March. There are a lot of activities still going on in, in, in Washington, D.C. to figure out what else needs to be done. I think right now, probably one of the things that needs to be done that, that seems to be most likely is is some form of the government taking some of the back end risk, the cost overrun risk, if you, if you will. Um, to help make sure that we know that if we do uh, set out on these projects and, 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 and things don't go quite as smoothly as we'd like, um, that, that we can still finish the projects and, and with, with minimal impact to the, uh, to the participating utilities. 
Um, I think there are some other things that need to be done in, in some simpler ways that can help move things forward. And then there's a lot of activity in DC around right now around trying to make improvements to the licensing process and the environmental permitting processes around these technologies. Um, you know, I guess the way I would say it, Austin, is, you know, one of the things that, that makes uh, the United States of America a leader around the world in, in, in safe, reliable operations of nuclear power is the Nuclear Regulatory Commission. They are the model for the world on how to regulate nuclear. Um, but at the same time, I think there are places where we need to recognize as we design in simplicity and better safety or safety at a, in a simpler way, then, then the licensing regulatory process and burden needs to recognize that and acknowledge that and reward that, if you will, with, with reduced requirements on the back end. And so um, there's a lot of work, uh, 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 bills out there floating around right now that have been moving around along to, uh, to put more pressure on the NRC to improve their processes and get more efficiency there. Um, so we need more predictability around the fact that they'll be able to license those in a timely manner and a predictable manner. Um, but uh, so I, I think there, I think the federal government acknowledges there's more that needs to be done. I think they're working very hard to figure out exactly what that is. And, and as I said, pretty, uh, uh, pretty bipartisan support on that. Um, but, uh, but we do also acknowledge a significant amount of, of uh, support that has already been given. And uh, again, what opportunities that has given us to, to explore this and move ahead. And so as we're discussing the future and, and looking ahead, uh, you know, maybe from, uh, you know, the, the other side of things, right, from, you know, kind of the advancements and the technologies and everything like that, what can we look forward to in the near term? Um, you know, kind of what's what's next for, for Energy Northwest and, and for the region in terms of where we're heading here? Uh, well, in the near term, I think, you know, uh, we, we will continue to try to develop uh, renewable projects and look at, at possible forms of energy storage. Uh, we have, uh, uh, we're in the process of submitting a concept paper to State Department of Commerce for some funds potentially around a storage project to explore sort of a newer technology uh, around storage. Um, I think those kinds of things need to be looked at. Um, you know, we're looking at ideas of how can we better utilize the grid? Um, how can we, you know, uh, how can utilities send signals to their customers that say, hey, you know, if, if, if you didn't come home and immediately start running your laundry, um, you know, at 6 p.m., right when, when the heat of the day is at a peak and your air conditioner is cranked up and, and, and you're also cooking dinner and you're also, you know, doing other things, um, if we could get you to smooth that out a bit and move that to a different time of day, I think there's things like that that we need to help people understand and put in programs in place to try to help drive that. I think, um, you know, I think in the near term, there's gonna be a lot of focus of trying to find things like that that we can do. Um, but, you know, the, the other thing I guess I have to throw in there, though, Austin, is on the flip side, we're going to continue to support, um, you know, uh, electrification of transportation that's being pushed in the region and, and um, you know, uh, electrification of building, heating, and things like that, that are also gonna continue to cause our electrical load to grow up, so, or uh, uh, increase, right, to grow. So we're, we're, we're sort of chasing ourselves a little bit here, right? We're chasing a moving target um, every, every time we, you know, can, can make some improvements, add some new resources, um, you know, we're, we're, we're adding load as well. I found it fascinating, uh, a report I, I heard this week 
um, in mid-August when we had a, a heat wave in the region here. Um, both Portland General Electric and Bonneville Power Administration were reporting record loads. Now think about that. These are record loads at temperatures that are 10 degrees less than what we had in the heat dome a couple of years ago. And yet they had higher loads than during that heat dome when it was 118 degrees in Portland. So at least 10 degrees cooler now. So that means somewhere we've gotten other loads that have grown in the region. Uh, you think about something that we all use every day, whether we realize it or not, the data centers that have, that have, that have been established in this region are, and are continuing to grow and have announced significant growth in the region, they're gonna need a lot of power. And we don't know where that power is gonna come from. Um, so we have to figure out how do we provide them clean, firm, but 24 seven, 365 power because no one wants our phones to quit working, um, you know, just because the sun went down at night or the wind stopped blowing. So, um, so there are a lot of challenges coming at us that every step we take, uh, we have the risk of, of being a step behind still. Um, you know, one of the things I think I also like to help people realize is, um, again, I, as, as, as early movers on wind and solar and, and batteries, I can tell you that, you know, we've faced very heavily that, you know, these projects have roughly a 20 to 25 year general life. And then you have to be, you know, replacing or refurbishing them. So you think about every megawatt of wind or solar or even batteries that we have on the system today may not really get us any closer to being ready for 2045 because they're all going to have to be rebuilt or placed by 2045. So we have a major challenge ahead of us. Uh, we have to be uh, moving ahead with urgency to, to, to create resources, uh, wind, solar, batteries. Um, but, but boy, I, I, you know, we shouldn't be thinking about taking any good resources like Columbia Generating Station or, or hydro facilities offline in the midst of that battle or, or we'll truly be one step forward, 10 steps backwards um, or, or even more. So, uh, but in the near term for Energy Northwest, we're going to do everything we can to explore all, all technologies and options that we think are going to help um, and that, that our member utilities or other utilities tell us that they need and want us to develop. Um, and, uh, and that's our vision and that's our mission and that's our goal. Well, we're glad, we're glad to, uh, glad to have you on board as, as members of ours and, and glad to be supportive of all the work that you're doing. And, um, you know, I know we're, we're winding down on time here today, but there's, I'm sure so much that we could probably still cover. Um, but, uh, you know, I'll, I'll leave you with our, our last question, which is always kind of a, a bit of a curveball <laughs> that we like to throw. Um, but I, I think it's a good one and it's, uh, you know, trying to kind of break away from everything that we've, you know, discussed more in the sort of energy world and hydro and uh, today nuclear, all that, and get back to uh, helping people get to know you a little bit better. And the way we do that is we ask everyone to try and provide us with a, a little piece of like closing out life advice. So, um, you know, breaking away from like the all the work stuff and just getting back to, you know, what are you all about? What do you live by? And, and what could you maybe pass along to our audience that they would appreciate and uh, be able to, to maybe learn something from moving forward after today's episode? Uh, so at the risk of, of, you know, giving an answer too quickly and, and, and maybe not the one I give, but, but I think this is one that I talk about quite a bit. Um, I'll, I'll just say this. Um, I encourage everybody to, to be a lifelong, set a goal of being a lifelong learner. Uh, never assume that you've got all the answers. Never assume that you've arrived, that you know that all your opinions are right. 
um, and that you know everything you need to know. Be a lifelong learner. And I mean that just about not just learning information, uh, but constantly trying to improve yourself um, as a person, as a human being, as a contributing member of society. And that requires, you know, an attitude of, of lifelong learning. So it's one that I've tried to apply in my life, both professionally and personally, one that I've really tried to encourage my kids to, to employ as they go forward. And, and one that, again, I would encourage everyone to think about um, at this time of transition in particular. Uh, it's easy. And, and, and in today's, I guess, political world, it's easier for us to settle in and think that we know all the answers and that we have all the information we need. Um, but I encourage everyone to, to be a lifelong learner. Sometimes that means, I hate to say it, I'm going to step on some toes. Sometimes that means you might have to listen to some different voices uh, than you maybe would normally listen to. But that's part of learning, right, is we're gathering information. We're hearing how other people think and do things and, and maybe being open to realize that, you know, hey, I remember something I thought when I was 20 and now I look back and think that's crazy. Uh, maybe 10 years from now, I'll look back at something I think now and, and think that's crazy. And, 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 and I need to just constantly be open in my mind to I could learn something. I could learn enough that might cause me to change my mind on something. Well, I, uh, I think that today I, I learned quite a bit myself. So I appreciate that. And I also I appreciate the knowledge that you were able to share with us today based on all the learning that you've been doing in this field for the last, what is it, nearly 30 years, you said. So, um, yeah, really appreciate that. Really appreciate your advice as well. And uh, thank you for making the time to join us on DAM today. I uh, appreciate it. It's been my pleasure. I've really enjoyed it and uh, appreciate the opportunity and uh, look forward to hear from your future guests as well. I'm incredibly grateful for the opportunity to have Greg on today's podcast, as the work they're doing over there at Energy Northwest is essential to moving the needle on our clean energy goals. What I wasn't expecting was how well he could concisely describe energy concepts in a way that, quite frankly, we're always struggling to do here. It's not easy to condense such nuanced ideas into a simple sentence, but he did it with ease while weaving it into today's discussion, and I'm going to have to take some notes on what he said and how well he said it. There's also so much more I wanted to ask him, but I think we prioritized and hit on the topics we needed to. Obviously, nuclear is going to deserve more airtime here on the podcast, and I think I'll be saving some of those questions for the future. Greg mentioned a few organizations they're working with to develop these new SMR projects, and we may just have some feelers out there to see if we can get one of them here on DAM. Now, I always ask you for your feedback, but today, I really mean it. I was told that in order for this podcast to happen, it was a requirement that I provide your feedback to Greg so he can take it into consideration when having discussions like this in the future. So listen, if I don't get any feedback from you, I'm gonna be in trouble. All you have to do to save my bacon is go to our website, nwriverpartners.org, and fill out a contact form on there. Or you can email us directly at info at nwriverpartners.org. Tell me what you thought of Greg in as many or few words as you'd like. And while you're at it, you can also let me know what you think of the podcast as a whole and who you want to hear on future episodes or what topics you'd like us to cover. Or you can just stick with the feedback for Greg. It's totally your call. But 
hey, if you actually follow through, I might just have to send you one of those coveted Save Our Damn stickers as a reward. Now, my begging and pleading doesn't end there because there's also this thing called reviews and receiving positive ones is essential to helping us grow and keep doing this thing. If you leave a five-star review on the listening platform you're currently on, just like that, you've helped us out. And hey, while you're tapping away, you should tap on the bell icon to turn on notifications so you don't miss any future episodes, which arrive every other Friday. In the meantime, visit us at NW River Partners on Facebook, YouTube, Instagram, and LinkedIn to stay in the loop. And if you're feeling like you're in the sharing sort of mood and want to connect with us, you can throw up a water power post of your own and use the hashtag OurPowerIsWater, and we'd appreciate seeing those. As always, speaking of appreciation, I appreciate you listening, and until next time, see ya!